Today, we're, our study from God's Word is in, from John chapter 17. I've entitled our message today, Jesus Prays for His Own. Jesus Prays for His Own. This is based on a famous classic book written by Marcus Rainsford entitled, Our Lord Prays for His Own. Uh, if you can get a copy of that somehow, it's, it's an old book. I think he lived in the 1800-something you know, it's, a, it's an entire book on John 17, just thoughts on John 17. It's a beautiful book, uh, Our Lord Prays for His Own. I, I wish I, I accidentally, when we were doing church cleaning, I gave it away. I put it on that table, so one of you has, has it. You know, uh, I actually gave it away, and so I couldn't, f- I have to look for it again. Uh, this week I was trying to study for the passage, but it's a wonderful book, Our Lord Prays for His Own, Marcus Rainsford. Jesus prays for all. Now, John 17, it's, it's famous because this is the passage that contains Jesus' high priestly prayer. Now, the first few times I've studied to preach this in the past 20 years, I was drawn by verses 1 to 5 where Jesus prays for himself. And in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for his work, his atoning work. There's this divine exchange between him and the Father. And I thought it was so powerful because if you ever needed a passage to reassure you about the assurance of your salvation based not on your work, but Jesus' work is John 17, verses 1 to 5. John 17, 1 to 5 will enliven your heart to realize how much Jesus loves us, how much Jesus loves you when he went to the cross, the cost that went into his sacrifice on the cross, that his work is so definite, so powerful, that you will persevere, not because of your work, but because of Jesus' work. That was verses 1 to 5. Then when you look at verses 6 to 10, it amplifies the power of Jesus' atoning work applied to his believers. But this time, something different happened. I was looking at verses 1 to 10 and on to verses 19, and I began to see John 17 is one of those passages that the more you study it, you're going to see deeper realities of the same truth that Jesus' finished work has ongoing application and implications for our lives. And when I started looking from verses 10 to 19, 11 to 19, I started to see, man, you imagine what's happening in our world. You know, there's, there's so many times where we look at the church and we say, how is the church going to make it? How is the evangelical church going to make it? There's disunity in the church. There's depression in the church. There's all kinds of problems in the church. There's corruption in the church. And there's us, right, our own sin. And when you look at that passage, you look deeply, you're like, the church is going to be okay. Again, not because of our work, but because of whose work? Jesus' work. Jesus' work is not an unfinished work. It is a finished work. I want you to say that with me. Jesus' work is a finished work. Our mission, our mission is finished or unfinished? Unfinished. So we have an unfinished task, an unfinished mission. Even in our lives, our sanctification is unfinished. We battle with sin. And in those moments where we're struggling with our sins and our emotions, we tend to look at ourselves. But when you're discouraged, when you look at the church and you're discouraged, you have to look back not to the unfinished church, but to the security of the finished work of Christ on the cross. When you look at your own life and you're struggling and you're looking, you're like, man, how am I going to persevere in my emotions and my strength and my faith through this week? How do I live for Christ? When you look into yourself, you're not going to have anything. You need to look outside of yourself back to the finished work of Christ. 
It is the finished work of Christ that, that empowers the unfinished work of his disciples, including you and me. Okay, so with that, now let's go back, go into the text. That's what I want you to see today. Point number one that I want you to see is Jesus prays for the glory of his work. And this is verses 1 to 10. Jesus prays for the glory of his work. Within verses 1 to 10, in verse, verses 1 to 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 to 10, he prays for the application of his finished work to his 11 disciples. Now let me read this into your hearing. First verses 1 to 5, it says this, when, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh, that's all of humanity, Jesus has divine authority, to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. Those are his disciples. And then in verse 3, and this is eternal life. So you've given them eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you. Knowledge of the true God, that they know you relationally, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Let's stop there for a little bit. We'll come back to verses 4 to 5 later. Now, what John does in this passage, he records Jesus' prayer, and it's, it's similar to John where he doesn't always go in logical order. So in verses, in verses uh, 1, in verse 1, he talks about his glory this divine exchange of glory. Then in verses 4 to 5, he's going to come back to the glory. But in between, in verses 2 to 3, he talks about his disciples. So that's how we're going to unpack it. First, verse 1, we see this intimate conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And as believers, when you read this, you should be deeply encouraged by this divine exchange. This is how much Jesus Christ loved us. When we talk about the passion of Jesus Christ being his crucifixion, this is the passion prior to him going to the cross. This is the passion that consumed the heart of the Son of God before he went to the cross. It says the hour has come, right? So he, lift, he lifts his eyes up to heaven. There's this divine conversation between two members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. He says the hour has come. What's the hour? It's the hour for the mission to be finished. It's the hour for his part of the mission to be finished. It is the hour where Jesus is going to die to be crucified, to go to the cross. It's this appointed time on the divine schedule of the sovereign calendar of the Trinity, John chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to Mary, his mother, my hour, mom, has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus says concerning the Feast of Booths, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, verse 8, he says it again. Only this time he says, my time has not yet fully come. There, there are moments in the Gospel of John where he could be arrested, he could be taken away, but it's not time yet. John chapter 7, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is operating on the divine plan and the divine timeline of God. So Jesus is well aware of his upcoming death, and he knew the reason why he came to the earth. He came to earth to die for you and me, to pay for our sins, and to rise again. And to bring glory to the Father. Now you jump into verse 2, which we read. And notice the designation 
the distinction, the distinguishing of all flesh from the people you gave me. Right? There are two groups of people here that I mentioned in verse 2. There's all flesh referring to all human creation. That Christ has divine authority over all mankind. One day Jesus will judge every living soul. And so Jesus has this divine authority over all flesh, but then there's a second group within the all flesh that, has a, that Jesus has been given special authority over. These are his believers, right? And in this immediate context, he's first and foremost talking about his 11 apostles. And later in verse 20, which is next week's passage, he extends the same prayer to every believer, you and me. But, there's a, but there's, there's a smaller group. It says, all whom God the Father has given the Son. We believe that Jesus is speaking here of his believers. And when, what has he given this smaller group? Eternal life. So there's a distinction. All flesh, all, all, the entire human race, and those who have been given eternal life. Two groups of people. And then in verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life. He says, knowing God is eternal life. Coming to the true knowledge of God is not merely an entryway into eternal life, but having a restored relationship. This is not just knowing facts about God, but truly knowing God relationally in a saving way, that is eternal life. Eternal life is not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life that begins now. Because in Genesis chapter 3, death entered. That's the opposite of life, death entered as man was separated from God by sin, and by going to the cross, Jesus is going to, the hour has come. Jesus is going to achieve eternal life for those whom the Father has given him, and he's accomplishing the eternal plan of God. Now, I want you to notice verses 4 and 5, and I want you to see this divine exchange in verses 4 to 5. It says this in verses 4 to 5. Let me read it to you. It says, I glorified you on earth. So his earthly ministry, and now he's going to the cross, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, Father, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in verse 4, you talk about this work. What is the work that he's going to accomplish? I want you to see this picture. There's an eternal plan of God where God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have this eternal plan to magnify the glory of Christ through a re redeeming lost sinners. Remember that if every single person in the human, in the world was saved, there, there'd be no such thing as salvation. What would you be being saved from? The fact that there is such a thing as salvation necessitates the need for damnation or judgment. Right? There's something that we need to be saved from in order for there to be salvation. So they make a plan to save a set of people. And so we as human beings, we don't know who God is going to save. We need to evangelize to everyone. We don't know. His disciples don't know. But God is God. He's omniscient. He knows. So God the Father, God the Son. So God the Father gives all the people in all of human history that Jesus is going to pay for their sins. All those people... God says, here they are, son, you're going to accomplish the work, not just for your 11, but for me and you who believe. And so the father 
gives to the Son. The Son receives these names. We don't know who they are, but God knows every single name, and Jesus knows every single person and every single sin that he's going to pay for. And he's going to say, I'm going to pay for their sins. I'm going to go to the cross and pay for their sins. And after Jesus is done, he hands it back to his father and says, here they are, Lord. You gave them to me as lost, broken sinners. And I'm going to give them back to you, washed, clean by the blood of the lamb as your beloved children. There's a divine exchange. That's the work. And because Jesus gives, he's bringing people into the presence of God. And he's bringing people into glory. And that's how he glorifies God. And so, again, when I said the first 10 years, or maybe, I don't know when I preached this the first time, maybe 2006, I was studying this, I was like, my goodness, my eternal security and my perseverance is not based on my work, even though we have human responsibility to live for Christ. I can't sin my way out of the finished work of Christ. Otherwise, that's a very weak work, atoning work. Jesus' death is so powerful that on your best day, on your worst day, that Satan gets to you, if he did, you can't sin your way out of his hands. Satan cannot snatch you out of the Father's hands. First of all, it's double security. Jesus has secured your death by his finished work. And he's handed you to the Father. You're in the hands of the Son and the Father. Jesus paid for your work. It's finished. It's done. That's what he's saying. Accomplished. It's done. I glorified, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What was the work to give eternal life to the people, not all flesh, but the people you gave to me? And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you, because my work is finished. Say it again. My word is? I brought my own amens today. Preach on, pastor. Keep going. Keep going. I know in an Asian heritage church, like people don't say amen and stuff. So I brought my own choir. Preach on, pastor. Keep going. It's like, amen. Finished work. But the task is unfinished. And isn't that, isn't that what we're afraid of, beloved, is the task? How do we do missions? How do I deal with the own mission in my own life of sanctification? we got to look back at the finished work of Christ. That's what empowers us, right? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. How do you increase glory? Jesus in his pre-incarnate state was already 100% glorious. 100% glorious. And now he's telling the Father, glorify me in your own presence. I think it goes back to the plan of God. Jesus is not saying he was less glorious before he went to the cross. Infinity, infinite glory plus one more percent of glory is infinity. Infinity plus anything is infinity. Infinity plus one is infinity, infinite. I think what happened is when Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and rose again, he's amplifying that eternal glory and it's echoing and it's, it's resounding. It's a greater glory because why? Because he's accomplishing the plan of God that they established before time began. So now he's saying, Jesus, I fit, Jesus is saying to his father, I finished that plan. I'm coming home. The mission's complete, at least his end. 
And he left the work for you and me to do through the power of the Spirit, right? Which is to bring the message of that finished work to the nations. Now, verses 6 to 10, he begins to apply this to his disciples. Says this, verse 6 and 7, I've manifested your name. Not to the world, but to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You see that theme? You gave me people to minister to. Again, he's talking about his 11 disciples, his apostles, but this is going to be applied really quickly to everybody else. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They've kept your word. They've kept your word. But wait a minute. His disciples are going to, Peter's going to betray him after John 17. Peter's going to deny him three times. His disciples will be scattered, hiding after John 17. So, but the perseverance of the disciples, Jesus already knows, I'm going to go to the cross. You see, all of that happens before the finished work. Do you get that? Sunday hasn't come yet. So Peter has betrayed Christ in between the unfinished work and the finished work on the cross. Jesus betrays Christ. His disciples are hiding. But when he's done, he says, it is finished. And when he paid for those sins, and when he rose from the grave, that's the only reason why Peter could be restored. Because the power that wasn't there is now there. So he knows that he's going to die even to secure the salvation and the perseverance of his wayward apostles, temporarily wayward, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Because the fount of every blessing is not yet finished yet, but it's about to be finished. It's about to be finished, right? They've kept your word. They're going to keep your word. It's, it's, It's as good as done. Verse 7, now they know that everything you have given me is from you. So so his 11 disciples know who Jesus is. Now verse 8, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So again, you see this picture, God the Father gives people to Jesus saying, give them my word, tell them about the Father, tell them everything that I'm going to reveal to you. Jesus says, I did it. Father, I've done it. I've taught them. I've walked with them. And and they're going to be okay because I'm going to the cross. Right? And so there's a clear distinction once again between the church and the world. There's the world, all flesh, and we're worried about the world. And then there's the church. And we this morning can have confidence that Jesus is not done with his church because he finished, he died for his church. He died for the success and the glory of his church. He bled for each and every member who would come into his church, whether they're in now or they've yet to be be saved. And so even when it seems like the church is not growing we hear and we read about, even in America, pockets of revival, right? Renewal. Uh, we don't know all the details, but we can be optimistic. We can be carefully, cautiously optimistic about how the Spirit continues to move in our day. All right? So Jesus is not done 
with his church. He's, he's finished the work, but there's an unfinished task, which is to sanctify the church and to bring the church into the fold. But he's died for his church. It's done. The church is going to be okay because of John 17. Now Jesus gets really specific, if you didn't believe me, of the distinction. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. Wait a minute, Jesus, that sounds mean. <laughs> what do you mean you don't pray for the world? You tell us to pray for the world. Are you not praying for the world? He's praying specifically about who he's going to die for. Okay? He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Again, it's a very clear distinction. All mine are yours, Father, and everyone you've given me, yours are mine. And I'm glorified in them. What do you mean I'm glorified in them? I thought, once again, that you were infinitely glorious. No, Jesus already knew from before time began who would be holy and blameless in him. He already knew who he would die for, and now he's going to finish the work. And when he finishes the work, that glory is going to be amplified. Jesus is ultimately glory because of the church. In heaven, you will see the scars. You will see him in his resurrected form. The, his sacrifice is part of who he is for all eternity. And in heaven, everyone's going to be singing, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Christ is going to be the center of worship in heaven. And what makes Christ highly exalted above all is because he paid for all the sins of all the saints. Every single voice, every single soul singing to God in heaven is not just going to be, oh, God the Father, oh, God the Spirit. All worship and praise is going to be directed towards the Lamb of God. That's what it means. God the Father, God the Son, they receive magnified glory because of the Son. All worship of God the Father, you try to say, dear Father, he's going to direct you to his Son. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You say, Holy Spirit, I want to worship you. He's going to say, no, no, no. My job, John chapter 14, 15, 16, is to help you understand Jesus. It's to point you to Jesus. The Trinity agrees that all worship comes through Christ. Christ is the center. That's what it means. He is glorified in what? In the church. First in his disciples, his apostles, but his apostles need to maintain faith, which Jesus will empower them to, in order for them to begin the church, and then you and I are the fruits of that work. So by finishing the redemptive plan of God, Jesus' glory is magnified for all eternity. And Jesus prayed for the glory of his work. And his work included his earthly ministry, his life, his atoning work, his death, and his resurrection. Now in verses 11 and 19, there's so much more we could say about verses 1 to 10, but we'll have to save that for another time. In verses 11 and 19, we see point number two. Jesus prays for the empowerment of his disciples. So, so in verses 1 to 10, we see that Jesus prays for the glory of his work, his atoning work on the cross. But in verses 11 to 19, we see that Jesus prays for the empowerment of his disciples. <clears throat> First, in verses 11 to 16, he prays for their spiritual protection. Empowerment for protection spiritually. First, look with me at verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> Let me read this into your hearing. It says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them. Keep them in your name, 
which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So there's two things that you see immediately from verse 11, which is their perseverance in the faith, right? Keep their faith. And secondly, that they may be one unity, okay? Unity of the church. So again, when you are worried about the unity of the church, look to the finished work of Christ. Verse 12, while I was with them, I, I kept them in your name because Jesus was physically there. I kept them, which you've given me. Again, it's, re it's repetitive. I've guarded them. What do you mean? Spiritual protection, their faith and their unity. I've kept them from fighting. Father, I've kept them from straying away from genuine belief. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction or perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. All right, so from what we read, we see that Jesus prays now for the Father to take over that work, that he's done his part. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for their sins. Now the Father, he's asking his father, father to empower the disciples with spiritual protection for their faith, for their unity, and soon you'll also see for their joy. Now, verse 12 makes, a clear, makes it clear that Jesus was speaking of his 12 because it says none of them have been lost except for Judas, right? Judas is the son of perdition or the son of destruction. Judas is the only one of the 12 that are lost to Satan, and this is because we believe he was never a genuine believer. When it says to fulfill, scriptures, fulfill scripture, most scholars point out Psalm 41 verse 9, which says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And so people would say Psalm 41.9 is what Jesus has in mind. I think something, a, a, a reference that's, that's just as strong is when you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 20. Acts chapter 1 verse 20, it says this, For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp Become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. And then that's referencing Psalm 109, verse 8, which may his days be few, may another take his office. I think that's also what Jesus is thinking about. Is in the book of Psalms, it talks about this office, and when you get to the New Testament, it's talking about the office of apostle. That there are 11 apostles, and then minus Judas, plus Matthias, and then later you add Paul. Right? And so someone else is going to take Judas's place. They're going to replace him. Not one was lost of his apostles except for the one Jesus knew that he would go against him. Right? That's the son of perdition. But we get back into our text. Back into our text. You look at verses 13 to 14. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Again, there's this distinction between all flesh, the world, and believers, starting with his disciples, 11 disciples. And so again, here we see Jesus prays for their perseverance in their faith, their unity, and their joy. And then verse 15 and 16, you see this repetitively this keeping in their faith, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So saying they have a mission in the world, and the world is going to tempt them, and the world is going to persecute them, and the world is going to come after them, and it's not going to be easy. And I'm not asking that you remove them from the world. 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, verse 16. Right, so, so there you have it. So when you look deeper and deeper into this passage, and next week we'll talk more about the unity. We'll, we'll save that for next week. But in the previous sermons, we talked about joy. Because again, John is repeating themes that have been taught. When your joy is threatened, when you're in your personal walk with life, in your marriage, in your personal relationships, in your own soul, you have to look to the finished work of Christ. And that he promises, and he's asking his father now to protect your joy. And, and when you talk about, again, the unity in the church, you've got to look at that. But all perseverance, all our perseverance is because we will be kept from the evil one. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them from, not from free of persecution, but you will remain in the faith despite persecution. Protect their unity. Protect their joy. That's what Jesus is saying to his father. Now in verses 17 and 19, you see that Jesus prays not only for their spiritual protection, but in terms of empowerment, he prays for their spiritual growth, for their spiritual growth. Look at verse 17 and 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. And he says, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. You see there? Mission. That's mission. The apostles will be sent into the world to start the church. You and I are part of the church. The fruit of his work. So Jesus says, I'm going to die for the church. I'm going to send, I'm going to secure the salvation of my apostles. I'm going to send them to launch the church. And then verse 20 applies to all of us. So that means that Jesus is going to secure the church. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world. So I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, meaning he sets himself aside. He sets himself apart, right? He's going to go to the cross, die for their sins, so that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see this repetitive, sanctify, sanctify, and truth, and sent them. When you connect all the themes, you see that our sanctification is not just for ourselves, but it's for being sent into the world for mission. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of becoming holy. It's, it's, it's the process of spiritual growth, but specifically it's, it's Christ-like growth. It's becoming, growing in spiritual purity. It refers to the progressive process of growing in Christ-like character. You see, salvation is just your position before Christ. We call that justification by faith. And so when you trust in Christ, this is your starting point. It's just a position. That's what Jesus went to the cross to secure. He went to the cross to die for your sins in your place. Prior to the cross, you and me, our standing position was wrath. God's wrath and the penalty of sin and we're headed for hell. Judgment, that was our position. But once you place your faith in Christ and his death and resurrection, now your position is in Christ. So when Jesus looks at you, or when God the Father looks down at you, he sees that you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. You've been justified, meaning you are a sinner, but you've been declared righteous in Christ. You've been justified. It's the book of Romans, the first part. You've been declared righteous. That's your position. And a lot of times when we speak of salvation, we're speaking of our position. I'm no longer going to face the eternal judgment of God. My position is justification. I'm justified by faith in Christ alone. 
Sanctification is here. It's in between justification and glorification. Sanctification is the process of growing into the person that Jesus died for you to secure. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Christ. There's still sin in our lives. So sanctification is that it's a lifelong process of dying to our sin and growing in Christ. Finally, you reach glorification. Glorification is when you get to heaven and you're no longer going to sin because you are like Christ. And one day you will receive resurrected bodies. But sanctification happens where the truth is. What is sitting on this metal stand right now? The Bible. So you got justification, and Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Right here. Your word is truth. And so how sanctification happens is that the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. But the Holy Spirit also inspired 66 books of the Bible. And so when, a, when the Holy Spirit lives in your heart and you have Scripture and the Holy Spirit helps you to understand Scripture, the Holy Spirit uses the truth to convict you. And that opens your eyes to truth and then he empowers you as well to live not for lies, which is the primary weapon of the enemy, is lies and deception and temptation, and he gives you truth. Sanctify them in the truth. The truth will set you free. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world so that I've sent them into the world. So, so a lot of times as Christians, we go out into this world and we're tossed to and fro and we need to come back to the source of our sanctification. It's Christ and the Holy Spirit and it's the Spirit-inspired Word of God. And so we're sanctified in the truth. But what I want to sent you out with applicationally is, it, is a lot of times in our churches, we just look at the Bible and our, our Bibles and we're just like, okay, sanctification, you know, the end goal of sanctification, I guess, is my personal character. So I'm just going to work on my personal growth. That's great. But Christianity is not self-help, right? It's, it's Christ-likeness for the sake of loving other people and for the sake of Jesus' mission. Other times we might say, oh, sanctify them by the truth. The truth. Expository preaching, theology. Sanctify them by the truth. So it's all about knowing more doctrine. That's good. But if the doctrine stays there, you're not really achieving the essence of the mission. The purpose of knowing God's truth, the purpose of being sanctified by God's truth, the purpose of growing in Christ-like character is so that we would be better witnesses. The purpose of being spiritually protected in the unity, in unity, is that the unity of the church is a much better witness. But that unity needs to unify around truth, not falsehood. The reason why Jesus prays for their joy is because, and I have to confess, a lot of times I don't have the type of joy that I should, is when we're not filled with joy, we're not a really good witness to this world. The world looks at us, man, you're miserable, I'm miserable too, but you're miserable as well, and you have Jesus. I get convicted about that. Why so somber? Why so stressed? I don't know. I have Jesus. I'm still stressed. I'm still sad. <laughs> right? And I got to look to the truth and say, oh, I need to look to the finished work of Christ on the cross and have joy that overflows for the sake of God's witness, God's mission. So the reason why Jesus is praying for his Father, keep them. I've put them in the world for mission. Keep them away from the evil one so that they will continue with the mission. 
Sanctify them in the truth so that they will carry the words of truth and fulfill their mission. Keep them unified so that they will be focused together on the mission and not be fighting each other. Everything is about the mission. Because I don't have it on the screen for you, but look in verse 20 now. This is next week's passage. Verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask for these only, the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You see that? So everything that Jesus prayed for his disciples, he says, I'm not only asking now for the apostles, but I'm asking the same prayer requests that you, Father, would please empower all those who will come to faith through the ministry of his apostles, which they started the church. So the big idea for this morning's message is Jesus prays for divine glory and the disciples' empowerment as the fruit of his work. The fruit of his atoning work is divine glory to God, his own glory, the Father's glory. But the fruit of his atoning work in the lives of us and his disciples is empowerment for our lives and the mission. For our lives and for the mission. The fruit of the cross leads not just, again, to our salvation, but to our empowerment. The cross enables and empowers our faith, unity, joy, sanctification, and mission. So once again, beloved, I'll end with this. Our work is finished or unfinished? Unfinished, right? There's an unfinished task. There's a mission to bring the message about the finished work to the nations. But Jesus' work is finished or unfinished? Finished on the cross. Worthy is the who was before the. There you go. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. If you, if you don't know Jesus, come to Christ. We would love to talk to you. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He rose again on the third day, and he's coming again. If you have not experienced the joy of the finished work of Christ, believe in Christ. Okay, pray with me now. Father, I want to pray if there's anybody in here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior and they have not received the finished work of your Son, they have not turned to you, Lord, I pray that you would turn their hearts now. Turn their eyes to Jesus. Turn their hearts to Jesus. That they would trust in you in your death and in your resurrection. And that you would give them joy, empowerment, unity. Lord, I want to pray for our church. That you would give our church joy, unity, and spiritual protection. Bring renewal even in our midst. That we would powerfully live for you. And most importantly, help us, Lord, never to forget about the mission. Lord, your finished work on the cross empowers your mission, which is unfinished in our lives, the unfinished work of our sanctification and the unfinished work of you using us to bring the gospel, the good news to others around us, locally and globally. Help us, Lord, to live powerfully for you. Thank you, Lord, for praying for us. Lord, we pray now that we would apply your prayer to our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.